millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round we are talking vampires. Specifically, we're talking Castlevania, which means we're going to have to explore the phenomenon that is Netflix, the phenomenon that is video games, and of course, real-life actual vampire burials. You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. If we're going to start with Castlevania, we have to start with the video game, which came out in 1986 and is an example of one of these devilishly hard 80s video games. And there was a reason for this, because in those days, if you like, the rules of what made a, a good and bad video game hadn't quite evolved yet. So people were making mistakes and not quite understanding how to make a game as playable as possible. They were learning. It was an early art form, after all, or early period in the art form. But at the same time, they were restricted by something very practical, and that's memory. You couldn't possibly do a Grand Theft Auto type thing on something like an Amiga or a Commodore 64. That just wasn't likely to happen. So... Because of that, to allow the game to last, you needed the game to be hard because people then had to try and crack it and beat it. If you like a, a flavour in the modern world of something like this would be the infamous Dark Souls series where it is brutal with its uh, you, you died uh, uh, screens as you die once again. Those games I'm not a huge fan of. And indeed, 
if you know, I love playing video games in the 80s, but I wasn't a huge, I, I, I finished very, very few. Also on that point, I just wanted to sort of say, I found this interesting, that in different countries, some of the games are changed. Now, obviously, in things like language, that happens, obviously. But uh, in, in a weird way, for example, uh, the one that I always remember, and I'm now going into the 1990s with the Lara Croft Tomb Raider games, you, if you fell off a ledge in the Western version, you died. And you had to sort of start at the beginning of the level again. But in Japan, that was considered, if you like, a cheap way to die. It was a, a, a death with no honor. So what happened, you had to be punished for it, but you didn't actually die. You sort of started back at the ledge, but you lost some items. So you were punished for the mistake, but it wasn't, if you like, as terminal a punishment as something in, uh, in, in the West. So Castlevania, what is it as a video game? Well, it's a side-scrolling map-based game. So you're a little, you know, we are talking about sort of 16-bit type icon, little blocky man walking around with this sort of weird whip thing, and uh, you're fighting lots of ghosts and ghouls, and you're trying to track down Dracula in his castle. Hence the name Castlevania, sort of Transylvania and Castle merged into one. And indeed, ironically, the name Castlevania is merged into something else because around about the same time, uh, in, the, in the late 1980s, you had something called Metroid Prime. And both these two games were fundamentally sim similar. There was this huge labyrinthine map. Now, it wasn't a top-down map. It was a side-scrolling map. And sometimes... At the edge, it looked like a solid wall, but there were certain secret rooms and things like this. So it led to walkthrough guides, and it's a remarkably complex early video game. And Metroid was pretty much the same thing, only we're now in space shooting aliens, okay? And so the two of them get combined in terms of Metrovania-type video games. In other words, it's side-scrolling, it's devilishly hard, there's lots of hidden rooms, and there's a sort of an unknown map system to go round it all. So that, if you like, is uh, what you're doing in it. And, and in it, in the first one, look... The thing about video games is when we start going into the, the story... It gets devilishly complicated because they were making up as they went along. And, oh, you like this one? Let's do another one. Well, now we have to explain why Dracula's back. Okay, so now we got this. Now we got that. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and sometimes there are spin-off comic books. Sometimes there are even book books. And it all becomes a very unwieldy mess very quickly. So I am going to sort of steer clear of this. Um, but uh, just, just to sort of say, you are playing a guy called Trevor Belmont. Trevor. Yeah, there's a there's a hero called Trevor. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad name, but it's just not a name you tend to hear very much. Uh, you've got John McClane, not Trevor McClane. It's Luke Skywalker, not Trevor Skywalker. You get the idea. The point is, Trevor is undeniably a, a British, sort of English-style name. That's fine. But it's not a name that sort of lusters a lot, has a lot of luster to it, has a lot of glamour to it. If you like, it's a kind of a good, decent working man's name. And I guess therefore as a workabout type guy, I guess Trevor Belmont might be the right name for him. But if you like, this is an example of, again, we're talking about you know, the infancy of the video games industry. And I'll give you a bigger example of where it goes wrong. Because Castlevania is from Konami and it's a Japanese video game. 
and therefore, unsurprisingly, the original was in Japanese and had to get translated. But also the Japanese like putting in foreign-sounding words. It's sort of, it's a bit cool to them. It's a bit like when we use terms like geisha or samurai. You know, there are certain sounds that sound cool and even though we know they're not from our language we kind of incorporate them you know the word ninja is used nowadays an awful lot you know oh you're a real sales ninja oh you're a real ninja on the keyboards or something it's like well you're not actually killing people with that but we know what you mean it means competent and capable and awesome trevor was an unusual name to choose for the main antagonist in the movie sorry protagonist i should say but the weirdest one in video game history has to be donkey kong now, Donkey Kong is, quick guess for you guys, what animal is Donkey Kong? Well, you probably already know. He's a giant ape. Why on earth is he called Donkey? And the reason for this, again, shows you in the early days, somebody sitting in Japan has just made a video game and they can quickly go to a Japanese-English dictionary, but they don't have some sort of big PR department or they don't have an office in San Francisco where somebody can sense-check this stuff and go, uh, hang, hang on, that makes no sense. And basically, obviously, large gorilla, clearly it's, it's based on King Kong, but you can't call it King Kong, that's copyrighted. And what the designer wanted was a name that was associated with stubbornness. So when they basically went to the Japanese-English thesaurus bit... I'm sure they had sort of stubborn or other words, but obviously we we have t the term donkey as in, you know, sort of like you are being very, very stubborn. And therefore, this Japanese person, not fluent in English, didn't realise that while it might mean stubborn, it is also the name of an animal and therefore a pretty poor name for a giant gorilla. But it's stuck and Donkey Kong is is a brand to this day. So if you like, this is a little bit of about the history of the making of video games and, and what it was like back in the 1980s. You know, we we kind of forget the whole, um, well, there was the movie that came out in 2018, Ready Player One. Uh, and, and that's a reference to sort of early video games saying, are you ready, player one? And are you ready, player two? And also at the end, it's like, would you like to continue if you're standing in the arcade? And, and this is something most children don't realize nowadays is the very best video games were in the arcade. Those were dedicated uh, video game machine consoles. They had better graphics and they had the latest games there. And you'd stand there. And if you're an American, you'd be just pumping in quarters. And if you're in Britain, you'd be pumping in the 10p pieces or 50p pieces. And you would basically waste all your pocket money playing on that game. And if you like, that is what made the home computing revolution so important. So yes, the grown-ups could start doing things like Excel spreadsheets and working out calendars and creating Word documents, which is all super important. But for me and my sister, it was a chance to play Chucky Egg or something like that. Okay, so... Uh, and and these video games in those days, well, if you're in the uh, if you're in the arcade, the idea was to make them super hard so you keep pumping in the money. But at home, we have very limited memory, so keep keep them really hard, and that means it lasts. People will keep playing this for the next, I don't know, three months, something like that. Nowadays, it's a far more different world. Let's not go into that. But where does Netflix come into all this? Well. Last year, or well, depends when you're listening to this, but in 2017, there was a just a four-part animated series based on Castlevania. And 
And then it, in 2018, it got turned into an eight-part sort of season two. So who knows how many parts are going to be in season three. But it was uh, done very much in the style of kind of anime. It had a sort of Japanese vibe put to it, which was completely appropriate considering the source material. But of course, it had to flesh things out because we couldn't just see somebody jump, dodge, push fire uh, over and over again in a TV show. You needed more than that. And to be fair, a lot had been filled in by the video games over the years as well. So we start with Trevor, Trevor Belmont. He's there, everybody. Uh, voiced by Richard Armitage, uh, so he's he's a bit of a legend. He plays Thorin Oakenshield in the Hobbit movies, and yeah, he's just a really cool dude, basically. Anyway, so he's a great voice. He's got a real laconic tone to his voice, and he's the last of the Belmonts, and they're um they are uh, they were sort of like magical, mystical hunters of of monsters and the undead, and he's sort of like the last one who's a bit drunken, a bit sort of laissez-faire about things and yeah he's a good character and I, I have to say I really like the TV series and this is an example of Netflix you see Netflix is has got so much money most people don't realize they're about five billion dollars in the red now they're making more than a billion dollars a year in terms of just subscriptions and there are other ways they can make money too some of their films get released in in limited release in cinemas but they have deep pockets, which allows them to try lots of different types of things. You know, they spent a fortune on the first series of House of Cards. And, you know, fast forwarding six, seven years, you just think about all the Netflix exclusives that you just got to watch. Internally, Netflix's motto is it's Netflix or nothing. And they are well aware that over the years, as they have risen and risen in power, other companies are are wanting to take their IPs back and stop rerunning our movies and our TV shows because we'll put them onto our streaming service. That's a problem for you, the consumer, and me, the consumer as well, because in America, and it's going to happen in Europe as well, we're going to start seeing a fragmentation of this. Whereas nowadays, personally, I have normal TV and I have Sky TV and I have Netflix, and I have Amazon Prime. So if you like normal TV, I have a TV license for. The other three I have to pay subscriptions for. I'm not going to pay for anymore. You know, Disney may be launching theirs, but unless everything gets taken off all the other ones, well, then maybe I give up on Sky. And I don't think, that there's no way all these streaming services are going to last, going to remain. Netflix knows this, so therefore they're trying to get a head start. And this is why they sort of like basically pulled the plug on some of their IPs that are going to be going back to Disney or Warner Brothers or wherever. And in the meantime, they're trying to create their own IPs, such as Castlevania. So with that in mind... Castlevania is quite important because there is a certain level of brand recognition. There are a number of gamers out there who recognize it, but they're hardly clamoring for an animated series. So they gave it a go. Four episodes. That's not the world's most expensive way to do animation. It's hardly The Simpsons, where there are dozens and dozens of episodes to go for. Instead, it's just a chance to dip the toe in the water. And everybody loved it. In fact, the joke was, and I always remember this on one of the YouTube channels, like, hang on, I'm going to check out the new Castlevania series. Walks off camera, walks back on camera. Okay, done that. Um, because people wanted more. And the second series continues it. And really what it's now is, is between Trevor Belmont and Dracula's son, 
Alucard, which, if you haven't worked out, is Dracula spelled backwards, okay? Fine. But all of this, all of this is bizarrely seated in some history. Despite all the ridiculous physics-defying action, despite the huge amount of mythological creatures, and despite castles that are so insanely large and so incredibly spindly, they would be too expensive to build and would just collapse in on themselves, but, you know, magic. Bizarrely, on the very first opening shot of Castlevania, the TV series, it says, Wallachia, 1455. They are trying to link this to actual history. And there are references to real uh, cities and real sort of situations in the Balkans in the 15th century. And that's all I can really say about the history because it never looked like that. None of this stuff really happened. But but yeah, (laughs) vampires' law originates from that area. Which means we have to, have to go back to Bram Stoker's... Oh, Bram Stoker. Bram was not his first name. I always thought it was. It's an unusual name. But bizarrely, that's an abbreviation of Abraham. Which therefore makes sense. It's like, oh, I can see Bram in the middle of Abraham. Okay, fine. But, but um, yeah, why he didn't call himself Abe? You know, nobody calls, calls the President of the United States Bram Lincoln. It's like Abraham Lincoln or Abe Lincoln... Bizarre, bizarre little sidestep there, I apologise. But yes, he created the modern concept of the vampire in the 19th century, and he also tied it back to the Balkans in the 1500s. It isn't overt, you know, it's been built on over the years, but what they're clearly piecing themselves back to is Vlad III, or Vlad Tepes. You know him as Vlad the Impaler. Now, this gets us to some really interesting history, because in the 1400s, you have the rise of a new threat to Europe from the East, and this threat is called the Ottomans, quite often mixed up with the word Turk. They're not the same thing. Maybe another podcast another time on that one. But the point is this. We have this power in the East that's starting to chip away at various kingdoms in Eastern Europe. And this empire is Muslim. And the places that they're conquering are Christian. And indeed, if we're starting in 1455, that is just two years after the fall of Constantinople. 1453 siege of Constantinople, end of the Byzantine Empire, end of technically the Roman Empire, and the fourth capital city of the Ottoman Empire. In the first 150 years, the Ottomans changed where their capital was four times because they kept capturing bigger and bigger cities. And quite frankly, you you, you want the biggest and best. And Constantinople was the Rome of the East. The amount of cities that get called, you know, oh, it's the Venice of the North. It's the Birmingham of the West. Nobody ever says that. But anyway, yes, but genuinely, when in the Roman Empire... In the late Roman Empire, it was split in two. You have the Western Roman Empire based on Rome, Eastern Roman Empire based on Constantinople. So it genuinely was the East, uh, the Rome of the East. So this was a sign, if you like, that the Ottomans were a huge power player and kind of here to stay. It wasn't; they weren't a flash in the pan. But they spent decades fighting their way through the Balkans, and this is where I can tell you that there genuinely was 
old territories called Wallachia and Transylvania. They're basically in modern-day Romania now, and there was indeed a sort of kingdom of Romania back in the day. But these were, for a time, the kind of the bulwark, the, the vanguard of Christianity against the, in inverted commas, evil Muslim empire. Of course, it was never as simple as that, and it's fascinating how so many Christian princes were there on the Ottoman side at the siege of Constantinople, and indeed were were filling the ranks of the Janissaries. Um, so yes, the, the the Ottoman Empire has basically been hijacked by so many different countries and vested interests, etc. What people forget was it might have been ruled by an Ottoman sultan, an Ottoman emperor, but every single Ottoman sultan was the son of a Christian slave girl. You know, they weren't that Turkish, for starters. The Janissaries, the elite military force of the Ottoman Empire for centuries, was exclusively um, manned by Christian men who had converted. And yes, people talk about, oh, it was the blood tax, oh, they were forced and blah, blah, blah. But, okay, it gets complicated but, and uh, there were many people, there is docu documentary evidence, uh, written evidence of people wanting their sons to go into the Janissaries because if I've got three sons and I'm just running a small little farm in Bulgaria, well, son number three really isn't going to get much out of this, is he? However, he goes into the Janissaries, he has a 20-year military campaign, he couldn't end up becoming a general of a mighty army, he could end up becoming a Grand Vizier, which is basically the Prime Minister of an entire empire. These things genuinely happened. The Ottoman Empire was very open to all races, all religions, and while the Jews were being kicked out of Europe, they all fled to the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire was a polyglot, multi-religious, hugely ethnically diverse empire. In, in many modern ways, it is more appealing to us than what was going on in the West, but we are so ingrained in thinking, Islam bad, you know, Turks, you know, on the, you know, just a bar barbarous lot. They weren't, okay? But let's, let us move on. But there's no doubt that obviously the places that were sort of on the edges of this empire were very, very scared of it. And it hadn't even got to its zenith yet, by the way, in, in the 1450s. But at this time, we have Vlad's family. Now, Vlad's father had campaigned hard against the Ottomans, and he was given basically a chivalric reward. Now, the, the very first one of these sort of like chivalric orders, these sort of um, knightly associations, is the Order of the Garter. And this was created in the mid-1300s, basically after the Battle of Crecy uh, and 1346, if you must know, by Edward III, where basically he turned around to everybody and said, you guys have fought so well together, we need to commemorate this. We need to create an association, a group, and you will be the Knights of the Garter. And uh, there's, a, you know, there's a basically about 20 of them. And to this day, it's still running. It's the most exclusive club in the world because, the, again, there's sort of still only about 20 or so people in the order. Um, it can't expand. You either you know, basically have to wait for somebody to die. And the way you get to be a member is you either have to be a close personal friend of the monarch, i.e. at the moment Queen Elizabeth II, second or a, an ex-prime minister of great britain so that's a very exclusive group indeed um 
And it was like that then. And and once Edward created this, it spread everywhere. There were yeah, the, the, like the Order of the Golden Spurs in France. And the, there were just loads of these orders. The first one was the Order of the Garter by Edward III. But, you know, by the 1400s, there were dozens of them. Uh, you know, all of them incredibly elite, some of them better known and better remembered than others. OK, and Vlad III, the famous Impaler, Vlad's dad, also called Vlad, he was Vlad II, because he'd done such a good job fighting the Muslims, he was given by the King of Hungary an opportunity to join one of these ones. And it was the Order of the Dragon. Uh, so he became Vlad Dracul, which is the basically the Hungarian or you know Wallachian for dragon. And Vlad III was the son of Vlad Dracul, or which, if again, in, in the in language, that's how you get the word Dracula, okay? That means sort of son of the dragon, which is, I guess you could argue, an even cooler name once you know the translation, okay? Who does not want to be son of the dragon? So, yeah, bizarrely, all of this is true. And Vlad III, Vlad the Impaler, who from now on, Vlad II's dead. The only reason why I wanted to mention him is how we got, the, got to the name Dracula, okay? So now when I mention Vlad, I'm talking about number three. He ended up ruling Wallachia on three separate occasions. He was an incredibly brutal man, but he was an incredibly brutal man for some pretty good reasons, as well as the fact that he seems to have been a psychopath. It was standard in this time, not just in the East, but in the West as well, that if you become a conquered kingdom, you're probably going to send your your sons, your children over to the the powers court, you know, the central powers court. You know, an example of this might be an exchange of hostages after during the Hundred Years War. OK, I've captured you. You need to go back and raise your ransom. But in the meantime, I'll hold on to your son and you don't get him back till you've raised your ransom kind of thing. And the Ottoman Empire did exactly the same thing. And they lavished Vlad and his brother Radu uh, with, well, I mean, they grew up in the, in the Ottoman court. They, they grew up sitting side by side with all the little boys who were, one of those was going to end up becoming Mehmet II, who was Mehmet the Conqueror, who conquered Constantinople in 1453. They were educated together. Vlad is seen as a colossal national hero in somewhere like Romania nowadays, but they forget that he was fluent in Ottoman Turkish. And, well, there was no doubt that Vlad was very much hadn't forgotten where he'd come from because he used his language and his understanding of their culture to actually carry out a very effective guerrilla war against the Ottomans. He knew, he was painfully aware he did not have the resources to fight battle for battle against the Ottomans. Even if the Ottomans lost, they could afford the losses of troops, he couldn't. And if you look at sort of like the sort of the Romanian-Bulgarian border area, it's all forests and it's all mountains. And if you have a stronghold on the top of a mountain, they're incredibly hard to crack and to, to besiege effectively. So if all of this sounds a bit like Dracula's castle, there is an echo of reality to that. And what happened was that um, Vlad ended up being, the thing is that Vlad was so cruel, he was so sort of psychotic in his quest for both power and also to get at the Ottomans that he got kicked out twice by his own people. 
There are a number of myths about him, which I'd like to sort of clarify. There is no contemporary evidence that he had bowls of blood that he dipped bread in and ate. That's not true. There's also no evidence whatsoever of him uh, putting out a gold cup in a town. And because he'd killed so many people, nobody dared touch the golden cup because they figured it was a, 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 um, a trap of some description. And but this, if you like, is a memory of how brutal this man was, because there was an, an Ottoman messenger who came to Vlad's court. And uh, when he refused to take his turban off, which the, which Vlad knew the he would not do in his presence because a, a sort of Muslim man from the Ottoman court, you know, it was just not customary to take his take it off in a formal setting. That's why he 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 did. The story is true of him nailing the turban to the man's head, i.e., killing him in a horrific and gross way. Then there's the impaling. Okay, so. <laughs> Vlad, uh, this is absolutely true. So at one point, uh, Mehmet, uh, Mehmet II, he, he led an army into uh, Vlad's territory and he'd sent up ahead a, um, a if you like, a, a scouting force. You know, not an inconsiderable number of men, but clearly not the main army. And they arrived at a clearing and they saw thousands of wooden stakes hammered into the ground and each one at least there was at least one man impaled on each one now how were they impaled they were actually sort of it was sort of shoved through their bellies and back as it were it went through them not all the way up them as it were although the the leader of that force was put on the highest uh, stake as a sort of mocking way to show him honor as it were but there was the, it was it, 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 you know it must have been horrific and if you start working out the numbers and you know sometimes there are you know there's descriptions of there was at least five men on each each one etc that there, that means there was about 20,000 people impaled there and they weren't all Ottoman. So clearly some of the people who had wavered in the face of Vlad's rule or maybe just common criminals, but it was a forest of dead people. And when the Ottoman forces turned up there, well, we don't know for a fact that that's what made them turn back. And also what Vlad was doing simultaneously was carried out a scorched earth policy in terms of making sure that there was just no resource for this large army to, to sort of feed on. Don't forget in those days, in the 1500s, people, you know, armies fed off the land. So if there wasn't any grain anywhere nearby, that could be a problem. Although the Ottoman forces quite often brought you know, entire ovens and bakeries with them. Anyway, the point is, what we do know is, pretty much at that point, the Ottomans turned back. And yes, while it's conjecture, it's very hard to come up to any other conclusion that they started walking through that forest of death and went, well, he's clearly crazy. Maybe we should come back another time. You know, it, 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 okay, that is conjecture. You want to turn around and say, show me the evidence and how can you know what somebody from 500 years ago was thinking? You're right, you're absolutely right. But putting it on a human level, it's very hard to come up with any other conclusion on that one. But then, 
just to show you how clever Vlad was, uh, he would dress up in Ottoman uniform and he would go up to Ottoman garrisons uh, with uh, some troops and basically talk to the, uh, the the leaders in Ottoman Turkish, perfect Ottoman Turkish, convince them to flow, fling open the doors and then he'd send in his, his alleged reinforcements that end up capturing the fortification. Clever. And in 1476, when there was another one of these very large Ottoman armies on the move and the Ottomans had these incredibly luscious and elaborate tents, they're, sometimes their their armies were said to be so large and so well-ordered with just their camps that they could be they, they were better than any western city and in 1462 uh, uh, near a town called Tagaviche uh, he, uh, Vlad did a night raid into the belly of the beast as it were into the, one of these very large encampments and basically went for the most opulent tent there and tried to capture Mehmet now actually you know, for Mehmet's sake, he got it wrong. He he managed to get into the Grand Vizier's uh, tent rather than Mehmet's tent. But yeah, so that shows you how effective he was at hit-and-run tactics. But I think it can become unsurprising if you sort of annoy everybody. If you were even thrown into prison by the most Christian kingdom of Hungary, which was also fighting endlessly against the Ottoman Empire then you very have very few allies that you can count on then and vlad was eventually captured and when he was uh, when he was uh, and he was died in a, a sort of relatively small skirmish actually with ottoman forces but when the ottoman soldiers realized who they'd killed they then sort of dismembered the body they sort of hacked him to pieces because they were so revolted by this man so vlad in a way was not liked by a lot of his contemporaries in his own country, wasn't liked by a lot of Christians to the West for his barbarity and savagery, and certainly wasn't liked by the Ottomans either. But now, because he was sticking it to the bad guys, in inverted commas, then, um, yeah, he's sort of he's national hero in basically Romania to this day. But this whole idea of this sort of like this blood and these sort of castles and this sort of man obsessed with bloodshed, you can see the dotted line from there to Dracula. And while, as I said, Bram Stoker might have come up with our very modern concept of vampires, the idea of these creatures of the night that might suck your blood or even worse, your soul, have been around for centuries. And there really, really is such a thing as vampire burials. And there are a few all over mainland Europe, from indeed modern day Romania into places like Italy and in the early colonial era of America, there are even a couple in America. I hasten to add, this has got nothing to do with Native Americans. This has everything to do with stupid, superstitious Westerners turning up and going, oh, people have been dying in the area. Maybe it's Dave down the road. He's a vampire. Let's get him. How can you tell they are vampire burials? Well, there are two indicators, largely. Um, so one is... Uh, they literally have a slab of stone wedged into their jaw. It's as if to say that they're, if they're going to come back from the dead in their coffin, that piece of stone will sort of shatter their teeth if the teeth start to grow into fangs or, or jaws of doom kind of thing. What an incredibly practical, if in fabulously superstitious idea that one is. And then... The other one, and this always makes me laugh, is inside the coffin, there is a, a heavy stone placed on the chest of the individual. Um, the idea being that when you are resurrected, that you will 
be unable to move a stone. Because if you've come back from the dead, if you are a being of the night with the power of Hades and the devil and Satan himself in, into him, you will be unable to move 10 pounds of stone, apparently. But to be fair, a couple of these stones have been found with hastily scratched out words like Christ on them or indeed a cross on them. So you could say that's the beginning of the idea of like the, the silver bu bullet or the holy water and all that kind of stuff. And it is worth pointing out all this, you know, the mythology of the stake in the heart and the... Or, and, you know, they have to sleep in a coffin of their home soil. You know, you can pretty much say that all of this comes from Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, which has just been built on over the century plus a change since then. And, you know, we've kind of fallen in love with vampires to the point where we get to something like uh, the ridiculous uh, glowing or glittery vampires of the Twilight series. And if you like, the fearsomeness of them has somewhat evaporated now. But it is worth pointing out, it is worth remembering that if you were living in somewhere like Transylvania in 1455, then there were dangerous things in those forests. There were feral wolves, there were bandits, there were Ottoman raiding parties that might end up carrying you away into slavery. There were th real things in many ways just as scary as vampires. But then if you have a tyrannical ruler above you who could just sort of kill you on a whim, chop off limbs, etc., well... You can see why the idea of vampires or fearing dark things in woods and castles really isn't a hard thing to sort of believe in in those situations. So let's not be too hard on the superstitious feelings of our ancestors. But all of this can be constructed from Castlevania, a video game from 1986, which is currently a really rather good, if you haven't checked it out, I do encourage you to give it a go. Look, for the record, Castlevania, the TV series, is very full-blooded. I believe it's rated 15. It's got very strong language in it. It's got an awful lot of gore and blood in it. Um, and yes, it, 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 I could think of worse ways to spend an evening sort of just checking it out. It is also very funny, that, like I say, the laconic comments and also the snarkiness between Trevor Belmont and Alucard, the son of Dracula, who is also half man, half vampire. It's really quite good. And it is also worth pointing out that in this version... What leads Dracula into going on to an absolute blood rage is the fact that his wife is convicted of witchcraft by the church. And, you know, they are clearly picking at things that, that people are sort of half aware of. But I'd like to point this out now. If we're talking about the Middle Ages, there wasn't any witchcraft ceremonies. This idea of witch hunts and things like that come much later. They basically come after the Reformation, really. And um, and therefore, it just wasn't it wouldn't be a thing in 1455. But let's not worry about the historical accuracy in this. But it means that Dracula, you can kind of see a point of view. He's sort of fed up with the church sort of desecrating people. And, you know, he's got real power. The church has this theoretical power. And yet they're sort of making everybody cower at them. And so Dracula is a semi uh, uh, sympathetic character. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say fully. The man's killing a lot of things. And right now he's trying to kill all of humanity. And he's got to be stopped, obviously. 
and uh, but it is it's you know it's mature in all senses of the word uh, animated series and i'd really suggest you give it a go and like i say if you've got netflix what's the harm watch one episode and if that doesn't grab you probably the rest isn't and, and all you've done is wasted 20 minutes of your life but maybe just maybe that might be one of your roots into anime perhaps i also tickled your fancy with akira you never know if you saw them any of these for the first time and enjoyed them you're welcome and on that point i'm going to turn around to you and say look Please, please do keep talking to us. Keep the neon revolution going. If you liked this podcast, whatever podcast format you're listening to this on, please give it a review. It all helps to spread the word. Thank you very much. Uh, you can come and give us uh, some full, fulsome support on Patreon. There's some really interesting stuff coming up on that there. If you become a Patreon supporter, yeah, you, you're going to get some interesting good gifts, as it were, from us, from neon to you. So that's uh, patreon.com forward slash neon podcast next week we're doing something very different it's an actual one-on-one interview between me and the best-selling historian tom holland where we did a screening of the movie 300 and then we talk about that movie in a neon kind of way with tom holland that's coming up next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.